Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. You'll have to bear with me. I'm dealing with a frog or a small dwarf that's living in my throat today. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're not here to talk about uh, magical creatures that live inside my throat making me sound weird. Um, we're continuing a conversation, Erica, that we started mm-hmm. last time. We talked. We began to talk about um, how mental health is one of those really important subjects in the culture that we live in, but that the church has sometimes not been great and sometimes has been downright um, unhelpful, not just neutral, but unhelpful <laughs> mm-hmm. in the conversation, but hoping to recapture uh, our role as people of faith in conversation about the importance of mental health and um, how, how we navigate that as, as people who, who are, are believers, but also acknowledge that the, the brain and the mind that God made is also... Uh, a mysterious thing that Mm -hmm. all kinds of things can go wrong in. Um, But we wanted to to focus that a little bit. Um, And uh, in particular, we started our conversation talking about how in the the wider culture's news of late, there have been a number of uh, prominent celebrity suicides, people who had taken Mm -hmm. their lives, who were well-known, and uh, how often that means that the subject of uh, self-destructive behavior of suicide uh, gets raised maybe for a few days and then it sort of uh, disappears again. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people's lives are touched by it, uh, whether in one's own immediate family or circle of friends. Um, and it's, again, one of those things that we just aren't great at talking about. Uh, and Eric and I are in this position of finding things to talk about that <laughs> nobody wants to talk about. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, how, that, how, how do we want to begin to approach a subject like this with the right amount of uh, I guess, seriousness and, and attentiveness. Well, the thing is, uh, as you kind of hinted towards, Steve, is that as pastors, as preachers, um, we often get the question um, when someone in our church has dealt with suicide, okay, my loved one has committed suicide, what's happened to them? I mean, right. can they go to heaven or are they condemned to hell? Where, where are they now? Right, right, right. And so, so we have to, you know, gently try to guide them through that conversation. Yeah, well, okay. So, I mean, and, and I, I get it because often pastors are, are uh, approached as, well, I, I, will, I will treat you as the local theology expert in my mm-hmm. life, so I'll ask you the theological side of the question. So it makes sense in my mind that those kind of questions get aimed at, or, or we're the ones often in those kind of conversations. Uh, how, how do you even begin to have that, that kind of conversation? Where, where, where do you go for, for, for uh, giving responses or giving guidance to people? I think the question a lot of times, Steve, comes from um, some of the medieval practices about confession. Okay. And, um, you know, people, there's just kind of this assumption, I think, in our culture that those who commit suicide are automatically just don't have the ability to go to heaven anymore. Yeah. So, so maybe there's a moment for us to, to, to stop and, and to say, again, owning our two traditions, that, mm-hmm. that we, we speak uh, in some sense just for ourselves and for the traditions that we're a part of. We can't necessarily speak to how all Christians at all times and all places have, have reflected on things, but I hope that folks, as they listen, will find what we have to say at least resonates with Scripture and is sort of grounded in the, the whole of Christian tradition. But then, particularly, the, the question of is, is someone who's committed suicide, are they ineligible for eternal salvation or heaven eternal mm-hmm. life? It's interesting because that question gets asked differently that like nobody ever says, well, I, I littered once or I uh, shoplifted once. Does that mean I'm not going yeah. to? And n- no, nobody, nobody seems to be under that assumption. So the question then gets kicked to, okay, why is it that someone might think that taking one's own life 
would prevent them from being mm-hmm. able to have eternal life or heaven or something like that. And there's something, there, there seems to be this implicit assumption that there must be something qualitatively different about that kind of action that must make it unforgivable or something like mm-hmm. that. And, okay, you dig a little bit deeper, why, why would that be unforgivable in a way that, say, uh, robbing a bank isn't unforgivable, or even for that matter, murder isn't. Uh, as, there, there's been sort of this assumption that even murder could be forgivable. Mm-hmm. Why would be? Why would taking one's own life not be forgivable? So, wh- wh- how do we get? How do people get into that corner? So, it, it goes like I said back to the medieval practice of confession. Okay, um, where one had to confess not only their sins to God but to a priest. Okay, and in some traditions, that's still you mm-hmm. know the case, um, but. It was the idea that if someone committed suicide, obviously then they are no longer capable of then, com- you know, confessing to a priest right. the fact that they have committed a sin, which, you know, is is a form of murder. Right. So, so the the, the notion in medieval thinking is a good way mm-hmm. of describing it, is sort of in, in medieval scholastic theology was just about any sin can be forgiven, but you, the way you get forgiven is you have to go to a priest who will then listen to it and then announce mm-hmm. whatever penance you're supposed to do, and then when you've done that, then sort of God checks the box sort of up in heaven that that mm-hmm. sin is dealt with or erased or something like that. And if that's your thinking, then it's not that suicide is qualitatively different than murder or robbing a bank. It's that you don't have the chance okay. to then confess it mm-hmm. to... Um, so similarly, for example... Someone who had committed murder and died in the act of committing murder, the old medieval theology would have said, well, they're also lost forever because yeah. they didn't get a chance to confess it to us. So it's really a matter of not not that Christian theology has ever thought of taking one's own life as qualitatively worse than taking somebody else's life mm-hmm. exactly, so much as the old assumption was, the medieval thinking was... Um, that the only way a person got forgiven was you had to go to the dispenser of forgiveness, the priest who would listen to the things you said uh, and then would grant forgiveness on that mm-hmm. basis. So, okay, so that helps us an- and answer the question, how would somebody get in the mindset of that uh, taking one's own life would remove the possibility of, of having an eternal life? So what do we say back to that? For me, that's... That's kind of an absurd thinking anymore. Okay. Um, okay. Personally, is it is it just a matter that it's it's uh, it's out of fashion? Is it just well we, we've outgrown that, or on, on what basis do we decide what notions are are out of fashion or or outmoded or, or what? Well, um, in 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 Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter eight, he has this long list of things that cannot separate us okay. from God: okay. angels, demons, principalities, powers, Heist, death, anything, else a- anything, anything in all creation cannot separate us from the love of God. And so what makes us think as people that then if nothing else can separate us, including, you know, angels mm-hmm. who we're just made slightly lower than, um, what makes us think that we can then separate ourselves from God's uh, love? Okay. Now, th- this is this is a really important idea that you've, you've latched on to here, that in the end, our, our hope, about the possibility of, of eternal life, even for people who've taken their own lives, isn't saying that suicide is trivial or who, you know, who cares doesn't matter, but mm-hmm. to say it's still not bigger or stronger than the, the power or the grip of God's love mm-hmm. on us. And that that's it, that our answer, as we talk about the question of suicide and the theological implications of suicide, this isn't to, to take the subject lightly or say suicide doesn't matter, who cares, go rob a bank, it doesn't matter, but to say these are serious things. But the 
grace and the grip of God's love is yet more serious. It has mm-hmm. yet more gravitas, has, has yet more weight and heft to it. And if Paul goes to the trouble of creating this laundry list of neither height nor depth nor angels nor anything present or past or future can separate us from God's love, then it seems like an awful wide loophole to imagine, oh, but I guess I can do it if I do the wrong thing or something like yeah. that. It, it's important, too, that um, in, in other places in Paul's letters, Paul talks about the, the, the way that Jesus' death and resurrection secures forgiveness. I mean, there's lots of language mm-hmm. that. Sometimes it's ransom language, sometimes it's sacrifice language. But, but in all those cases, whatever metaphor Paul is using, it always has this past accomplished dimension to it. It's, yeah. it's not like uh, Jesus died and that's a down payment, and then if I work hard enough, then I got to do the rest myself. But Paul treats whatever happened at the cross as definitive, like it's an accomplished, done deal. So that Paul uh, could say, like in, in you get in, in um, Ephesians and Colossians in particular, I'm thinking in Colossians there's this image of uh, God took the record of all of our sins, nailed it to the cross and left it there and walked away as if to say, I'm not going back for it. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to suggest that um, all the things, not only that I have done chronologically, up, up to this point in my life, but also all things I am doing currently wrong and the things I will do are included in that. That mm-hmm. it's not simply, n- nobody, not even in the, in the New Testament themselves, said, well, all right, here it is, year AD 33. Every sin up to this point has been dealt with at the cross, but from now on, you're on your own. Mm-hmm. But instead, there's a sense of all the sins I will ever be responsible for are all caught up in the cross and dealt with and left there and wiped away off the record. Um, and if that's the case, then... I don't, I don't have to continue to see forgiveness as something I have to seek out from a religious professional, and they will put an application if I prayed well enough for mm-hmm. it, you know? Yeah, I, I keep thinking about the graces from my tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, it has, we named the three different types of graces, the prevenient grace that goes before us, justifying grace of accepting Jesus, and then sanctifying grace that we continue on. And, and I see this idea of, of suicide and like the grace that's shown it's almost like prevenient grace. Now, I know that's the grace that kind of comes before we accept Christ as Lord and mm-hmm. Savior, but it's this idea that, you know, God has taken care of, because prevenient grace also takes care of everything that happened before. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when we stand, you know, if somebody who has committed suicide stands in front of the, the judgment throne of, of Christ and has, at one point in their life, had accepted Christ before their suicide and all their sins are forgiven, I mean, that's included, you know, even the suicide is included in right, that. Right, 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 right. And there's always a sense, you know, whether, whether we label it prevenient or not, there's always a sense in which grace is always sort of this, before we're even aware yes. of it, there, there's mm-hmm. always this sort of dimension of grace that isn't reaction. You know, we, we often tend to think in transactional language, if you do something nice for me, then I do something back. Oh, I do something wrong, then I have to do something to get back in the mm-hmm. right relationship. And grace sort of always, in, in whatever phase or moment of our lives, always sort of turns that on its head. And it's always, I was standing there with arms wide open before you were even aware of mm-hmm. it. Um, there, there's a there's a, an insight of um, Robert Farrar Capons that comes to mind. He's a, a an Episcopal writer and theologian, um, and there's an image he uses. He, he's not specifically dealing with the question of suicide, but so much of Capons' writing has to do with death and resurrection as like the heart of what the gospel is all about. And he says um, he, he uses the image, the the story in John's gospel about when Lazarus dies. You know, and it's it's that famous story in John 11, uh, Lazarus dies, and then Jesus calls him back to life and. Uh, Capon's point is that when Lazarus dies, what he loses is the ability to hold on to his own life. 
he manifestly does not lose Jesus' ability to hold on to his life. Mm. Which I, I, it was, it was a mind blowing thought for me when I first mm-hmm. read it that at death something is lost. I lose my ability to hold on to my own life, but. God has never stopped holding on to me mm-hmm. so that uh, even if there comes a point in despair in that dark night of the soul where I'm convinced that my life isn't worth holding on to and I, I do something horrible and tragic and, and take my own life, even if I decide that my life isn't worth living, there's good news in hearing I'm not the final judge or I don't get the final vote. I mean, we, we tend to live in a culture that's like, it, it's good news when you get the final say in your life and it's bad news if somebody else gets mm-hmm. say in your life. And Christianity sort of has this different uh, uh, perspective of, no, sometimes it's really good news to hear that I don't get the final say in my own life, um, that God gets to say, it turns out, I, I, I deem that your life is valuable, I hold on to it even if you've mm-hmm. let go of it yourself. Um, and that God refuses to let go even when we've lost our grip or our ability or our willingness to hold on to it. I mean, sometimes, uh, like if you've been carrying a really, really heavy load or you're carrying a, um, a wheelbarrow, at some point your arms get tired and you put it down, um, it, it's not even like, well, I, 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 I don't want to let go, but I have to. My arms just, sometimes it can feel like mm-hmm. I, mean, I have no choice. I just have to let go. But even at the point at which we let go, the promise we get, the, the, the language we get in the New Testament, especially from Paul, stories like Lazarus, is that, just because I've let go doesn't mean that God has. Mm-hmm. Because God knows the inner workings of the heart and the mind, and he realizes, um, because he is God and he's all-knowing, that you know, sometimes when a person gets to the point of being suicidal, they, they feel that there's absolutely nothing left. Mm-hmm. You know, it, It's not... It, it's hard to describe if you've not been there. I've not personally been there. Uh, but I have friends who have been there who, who have... Um, you know, been suicidal and haven't tried to take their own lives, or sometimes have and, and have survived. And it's it's a place that we really can't understand yeah. unless we've been there. But God gets it. God knows that this is not something we necessarily want to do, but our mind and our body is telling us this is our only option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there comes a point at which it feels like um, there's there's just no use, or there's no point, or uh, a, a feeling valueless or empty, mm-hmm. or or, or being completely out of control of things. Yeah. And yet, in the midst of that, God continues to value us. Yeah. And again, that, that's, I think, that this critical piece that we in the, in the Christian tradition have to say in the conversation, that part of what it means to believe in a God who's made every last one of us in the image of God, um, and that that valuing is not dependent on our accomplishments or our abilities or mm-hmm. um, how anybody else values us. And it's even that God values me even when I don't value myself. So that mm-hmm. even if I'm at the point of, I'm useless, I'm, there's no point to me being around that kind of thing, God begs to differ and God says, no, you are infinitely precious and beloved. Um, that, that's an important piece that, that uh, we have to offer in the conversation. There, there's, there's also, I think, maybe an important piece that we can borrow or that resonates maybe between uh, Christian perspective and um, a lot of other lives that have been touched by um, suicide. I've, I've seen this um, this symbol, this imagery of a semicolon. Um, yeah. I've mm-hmm. seen people who have um, survived attempts at taking their own lives and later on get a, a, a tattoo of a semicolon. Or um, I have a, a pendant, a, a necklace with a, a semicolon on it as well. I've seen other people as well. But the imagery is that in um, uh, in grammar and punctuation, for those of you who loved grammar and you know, just can't wait to have a conversation <laughs> about punctuation, um, uh, I, I, I love this description. Uh, a semicolon uh, separates two separate thoughts that could stand on their own. So if you have a sentence and you have a semicolon, that could have been a sentence by it itself. It could have mm-hmm. been the end of the sentence. There could have been a period. But someone has deliberately made the choice to let this sentence continue on mm-hmm. and it will continue saying things. Um, and that that's, in a sense, what it is. Um, 
to be the, the, the perspective of, of the people of God, that um, God reserves the right to put semicolons in where we think periods uh, should go, mm-hmm. and that God reserves the right to say the story will continue on. Uh, after all, I mean, at the heart of our faith is, is death and resurrection in, mm-hmm. in, in Jesus himself, and that where all the powers of death and all the darkness in the world does it does its worst to end the story of Jesus, um, that there's a, a semicolon rather than a, a period at the end of that story. That's a point at which we as the followers of Jesus shouldn't be like staring at our feet going, well, I don't know whether people who commit suicide could be eligible still to be in heaven. We should be like, ah, obviously, yes, 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 of mm-hmm. course, because there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That, that's, that's important maybe because um, sometimes, sometimes I feel bad that the way we as pastors enter in this conversation with people is often only after, after the fact. fact. Mm-hmm. And again, this maybe tags onto our conversation last time that often issues relating to depression or mental health uh, in whatever subtopic don't get addressed at all in, in the life of the church uh, for a whole host of reasons, you know, the public stigma and the shame and the you know, whatever mm-hmm. else. Um, but that we, we don't have to be, or we shouldn't have to be, uh, only the voices who speak after someone has done something to mm-hmm. take their own life. And, this, and, to, and and sometimes, because people's default assumption is, well, the person I loved, it, they must not be in heaven, they must be in hell or something like that. I don't even want to broach the subject with my pastor because it sounds too scary. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear them say the thing I'm afraid they will say. Um, that maybe part of what the Christian community needs to be doing, um, at least if you find uh, Erica and my train of thought here to be resonant with mm-hmm. the scriptures, um, that is, there, there's, a, there's a point for us to be proactive and to say, yes. not just afterwards or not just, uh, but to say, like, look, this is what taking grace seriously means. It means there's nothing you can do that can separate you from the, the love of God in Christ Jesus. And not to let that become an open door to work. So who cares? Let's all take our own lives. Mm-hmm. But to say there's nothing you can do uh, to lose uh, God's infinite value on in your life. Um, that means in life and in death and anything else. So it makes life worth living, even at the point where I don't think my life is worth living. God begs to differ. I mean, that's an important thing we ought to be saying all the time. Oh, absolutely. Because, again, that's what people, that's what takes somebody to the desperation of suicide. Is they, they just feel that there's nothing worth living for anymore. It's not uh, It's not a selfish thing. It's, it's just they get to this dark place where nothing matters to them. And yet God is crying out to them, screaming to all of us, saying, you matter. You matter to me. And so, yeah, we need to do a better job as, as pastors, and I think the Christian community in general, because it's not just us. You know, we're only heard on Sunday mornings for an hour. Right, right, right. But the Christian community in general needs to, to do a better job at, at telling people how much they are valued and they are worth, um, how much worth they have for God, and to, you know, to tell them that there is more to this life than what you're going through. And, and that may mean, too, that part of how the whole Christian community is, is called to engage and to, to proactively deal with the things that lead people to, to take their own lives is that we need to be training one another and equipping one another to have our eyes open to mm-hmm. the people who feel like they're slipping through the cracks and like they don't matter. So that part of the, the, the mission of the church is about telling people as far and wide as possible they are infinitely beloved. I mean, like, that's that's not a side part to our mission. It's not just, well, most churches just have, you know, Sunday church, and then on the side they have a bonus ministry of mental health. No, at the core of the gospel is telling mm-hmm. anybody and everybody you are infinitely beloved of God. Um, and that's at the heart of what we're supposed to do. And, again, that, that 
then ripples out and, and is related to preventing, hopefully, people from, from getting mm-hmm. into such a dark place that they feel like they have to take their own lives. For us to be able to do that, though, Steve, we need to be able to and be willing to listen to people. Right. And, and we need to train ourselves, too, to be able to watch and to see because so often mm-hmm. our problem is not, like, in an abstract sense that we... Um, don't care about other people. We're, we're taught pretty well. We're all Christians are supposed to care about people, but we get so busy or focused on other things that we don't see people. Mm-hmm. I mean, like we just are, you know, I'm, I'm too busy. I can't notice. Or I, I wasn't paying attention to that person who mm-hmm. usually speaks up and they seemed awfully blue today. That part of this is about having our eyes and our ears open as well. Cause there, there are usually signs there. There's usually, right. um, and a lot of times, you know, that, Hindsight's twenty twenty. Obviously, everything's much clearer on the other side, unfortunately, of suicide. And you're like, oh, yeah, that was a sign. That right. was a sign. That was a sign. But we need to be really attentive and, and start to learn to recognize those signs even before, you know, it, they lead someone to that point of being so desperate that they take their own life. Right, right. And and that that willingness to, to look and the willingness even to, to risk the, the being foolish. I mean, like, mm-hmm. it's, it's possible... That uh, you might be, you're, you might be on yellow alert, and boy, somebody seems down. I wonder. It, it is infinitely better, infinitely better to approach somebody and ask how they're doing, check in with them, mm-hmm. and to turn out to find out, oh, they're fine, or they just had a rough day, or something like that, rather than to ignore and say, well, I'm sure they're just fine. I mean, it doesn't mean that we always have to be walking around people saying, are you, are you going to kill yourself? But we do, we we do have the ability, and maybe we should have the courage. Um, to approach people and risk the possibility that they, you know, if, if I approach them and say, boy, it seems like something's on your mind, it seems like you're down, um, there's the risk that, that they might say, no, I'm just fine, mm-hmm. and we might get, you know, uh, turned away. And, yeah, you, you got you to gotta risk that rejection. You got to risk the possibility mm-hmm. the other person uh, isn't, isn't interested in following up on the conversation. But if there's the possibility at all that it might be the very connection someone is, is aching for, is, is, mm-hmm. is wishing somebody would ask, is wanting to be noticed, sometimes that's what pulls people back from the brink. Yeah, I just uh, finished working at, at camp a couple of weeks ago with a bunch of teens and, and pre-teens. I've been doing this for years. It's a drama camp, and there, there's something amazing about camp and how kids just open up, you know, when, when they're in a different environment, when they're away from their cell phones and everything. And I've heard some really tragic stories from these kids, but I found, you know, what they need the most during that week and what most people that are going through any type of mental illness, not saying all these kids are dealing with that, but... Um, you know, maybe some of them are, it's just a listening ear. They need somebody to actually not just listen for five minutes and then walk away and forget the conversation, but to actually be engaged in the conversation and take them seriously. Right, right, right. And, and you know, hopefully this is clear, but let me say it out loud anyway. Eric and I don't mean to say that listening solves everything as if to say, like, um, there's never a need for people to talk to counselors beyond oh, gosh, uh, friends yeah. or yeah. that there's uh, never a role for uh, antidepressants or things like that. But to say the first step is people in someone's immediate circle listening and if, if there's something that like raises a yellow flag or raises, oh, you know, boy, there's a concern, that, then that opens up the doors for mm-hmm. what are the right other resources. And sometimes, sometimes it, it is just you need someone to be able to talk to. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's simply at the level of friend, pastor, you know, someone in, in your in your close social circles. Sometimes other other resources or people are needed. Mm-hmm. But it's it's that willingness not to ignore people. You know, it's, I, I often think in in that famous story Jesus tells, we call the the Good Samaritan. You know, the, the first two people who pass the guy mm-hmm. by the side of the road. Um, 
I don't think they see themselves as villains or bad guys. I think mm-hmm. they're just convinced that they're too busy, they have other things to do, not to notice this guy by the mm-hmm. side of the road. And maybe they're hung up on what could happen to me if I try and help this guy. Mm-hmm. Maybe something bad will happen to me or I'll get hung up in this guy's story or something. But um, I'm reminded of a line of, of uh, Dr. King's, Martin Luther King's, about that parable. He says, the right question to ask isn't what could happen to me if I help this guy, but what will happen to him if I don't help? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. that so often that's that's maybe the right frame of mind as we deal with other people. That, yeah, if, if you take the time to listen to somebody else who seems like they're in a blue spot, they might talk your ear off for a while. You might have to sit and listen. You might have to have coffee with them. You might have to check in with them. You might have to regularly, not just once, but from time to time, see how they're doing. You might have to develop a friendship with them. Yep, you might. But on the other hand, if I turn a deaf ear and say, it's not my problem, I've got other stuff to do, or we're so tangled up in our rectangles of technology, um, there, there are people who will feel like they are alone and, and might take their own lives. And it, it, it feels like this is one of those places where part of what love does is takes the risk. Yep. I might get entangled in their stuff, mm-hmm. and, and that's what love does. And it's not just listening, but taking very seriously when people talk about, um, you know, suicidal thoughts or any mental health disorder. I think we touched on this a little bit in our last episode. Just, you know, sometimes we, we like to try to shove mental health off and treat it like, well, just put a Band-Aid over it, and that will fix it. Yeah. And that's not the way it's often fixed. You know, oftentimes you do need to see at least a counselor, yeah. if not also be taking medications or things for it as well. And if we're not listening and taking seriously people who are dealing with this kind of stuff and, and telling them, you know what, I think you need to go see somebody. You right. know, I, I'm not a licensed counselor. See, right. you're not a licensed right. counselor. Somebody can come to us and we can help them from a spiritual perspective. Right. right. And we can be there. I mean, this is a place where any of our... And any folks in any congregation, even just being a decent friend, you can be there with somebody if they decide they need to check themselves into mm-hmm. uh, a psychiatric unit or a hospital. I mean, that, those are helpful pieces that friends yep. can do and can accompany. And it doesn't mean that you have to all of a sudden pretend that you're a clinical psychiatrist or something like that. But no, please don't. Be, yeah, <laughs> but you can be someone who cares and says, I don't have the right tools to know what's going on, but I can tell you're not acting like I, the person mm-hmm. I usually know or it seems like something's wrong. Please, mm-hmm. let's go. And again, it's so much easier to, to, to it's so much better to find out you're wrong. I mean, to, to, to go and have, um, uh, you know, a, a trained cl- clinical professional person say, no, this person doesn't need this or that. And, mm-hmm. Great, so much better. Okay, all yeah. the wasted is an afternoon talking to somebody rather than somebody being in that dark place by themselves and feeling like they, they have no choice but to take their own lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, for us as people of faith, part of how we engage this subject is hopefully deconstructing the the old myth. And that, I, I'll, I'll just mm-hmm. say that that's what it is, that um, the way forgiveness works is you have to go to a licensed dispenser of forgiveness to officially get it from mm-hmm. God. Because if we take the scripture seriously, again, I'll, I'll own my Lutheran slant on on how this how, how our, our relationship with God works, but it is decidedly not that it has to be through an authorized franchi- mm-hmm. franchisee or a, a religious professional who will say the proper words to say, now you're forgiven. But the forgiveness comes through what's happened at the cross. And mm-hmm. other people, pastors, friends, teachers, Christians, these people are helpful in saying these words to us, reminding us of them, but I don't grant the forgiveness. God's already done. Absolutely. It's a done deal. It's accomplished. Mm-hmm. To tell aside, it's finished, Jesus says, on the cross. And so the more we can deconstruct and take down that old structure in people's minds that says, well, the only reason, the only way to get forgiven is you have to go to a priest Mm -hmm. to to get forgiveness. If we can get that baggage out of the way and say, that's that's not it, that that doesn't have to get in the way, that changes the subject, or changes the conversation the way we, we discuss it. 
And then secondarily, if we can be people who teach one another to have our eyes open, right? Uh-huh. Are there other things you w- would ask of people listening or, or of us just in this conversation, ways we can help um, be aware uh, for people who feel like they're at that verge uh, of, of being that very, very dark place? Well, listening, I think, is definitely a key to that. Um, we need to be watchful, too, because mm-hmm. folks that tend to lean towards even the idea of th- suicide, mm-hmm. and I, I'm thinking because I have a teaching background, and I just, like I said, I just came from this camp a couple weeks ago and, and all this stuff, is that lonely kid sitting at the lunch table by themselves. Sure, sure. Or that kid in, on the playground that, you know, just sits on the bench and has nobody... Or, or your coworker who, you know, when all of you are out going to lunch somewhere and they stay back in the office and they work through lunch. Right, right. And again, this isn't to say that introversion is a sign of mental uh, health problems. No, I, introvert. I, I, I'm, I'm hardwired as an introvert. And there's so am I. I'm the person sitting at my desk eating lunch. But that awareness, and especially when, it, when it's a sign of somebody acting outside their, their usual pattern, mm-hmm. someone seems out of character for them as, as, a, as a place. So having our eyes open, having our ears open and the willingness to listen and maybe telling the right story so that we're no longer people who tell the story of, oh, yeah, if you commit suicide, that's it. There's no hope for you because you can't yeah. go to the priest after. No, that's not how it works. That, that was never how it works. And to say, biblically, the Bible never said that's how it works either. Mm, no. um, that's an important piece for us to recover as well. Well, yeah. we appreciate you all listening to the conversation, and especially dealing with the uh, frog that's living in my throat today. Um, <laughs> but thanks for being a part of this conversation. Uh, and if we can ask a favor, keep your eyes and ears open. Absolutely. See you guys. Bye.